we are finishing up a sermon series today called Game of Thrones, and if you have missed any of it so far, uh, that's okay. Basically, what we are talking about is this period in the nation of Israel's history in the Old Testament where they were ruled by kings. And the main idea of this series so far has been that disobedience always brings chaos. That our God, Yahweh, which Yahweh is the name of the Lord from the Old Testament. If you open the Old Testament and you see capital L and then the little caps O-R-D, that is a substitution for the name of God in in Hebrew, which when you kind of transliterate it over into English is Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And so Yahweh, when he created the, the universe, he made things operate according to a certain amount of order. And order brings peace. And he commanded us to walk in ways that are orderly and right and good and kind and compassionate. But anytime we go off track, we get off the rails of God's plan for us and we sin with disobedience, what we do is we reintroduce chaos into God's creation. And so disobedience to God always brings chaos. And as we've been going through this period of Israel's uh, history, excuse me, We've seen that the kings and the rulers of Israel, they did not follow God's plan. I mean, a few did, but for the overwhelming majority, they just did their own thing. And they introduced so much chaos. I mean, the chaos you see in the, the, the book of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. I mean, it is mess on steroids. It is just like the craziest stories to read in the Bible. And so not only do they bring chaos... Um, but their chaos, by, because they led mostly through selfishness and ruthlessness and this lust for power, um, this lust for power kind of spread out throughout the kingdom, right? Because the way of the leader goes the way of the people. And so you end up with everybody basically trying to kill the king all the time. Whoever the king is, somebody's trying to kill the king because somebody else wants the power. And that's why we call this series Game of Thrones, not just a shameless plug from the TV show, but also because people treated the throne like it was a game of King of the Hill. And all I got to do is end up on the top of the hill and I will be the winner. And so, again, nasty, nasty time in Israel's history, but it makes for some good reading. You should read your Bibles, I'll tell you that. Um, So today we're going to finish up our story by looking at the one and only queen of Israel. And I love this story because it's so obscure. Nobody knows that Israel had a queen. It's such a small little section in Scripture, not even uh, maybe a whole chapter devoted to the whole thing of it, Um, but but nobody knows her name. In fact, a few years ago when we had a harvest party out here, uh, we did a trivia, and one of the rounds of trivia was Bible trivia. And I had just read the story, and so the question I put in there was, what's the name of the queen of Israel? And I did uh, multiple choice. And how many people do you think sitting at that table got it right? None, right? Nobody knows this story, right? And I would even venture to say that even the people that are in this room who took that quiz and learned her name that day still don't know it, okay? Because it's just that kind of an obscure story, okay? Well, this lovely lady's name is Athaliah. Athaliah. She was the only woman to ever sit on the throne of either Israel or Judah, which we'll get to in a second. Um, And she rose to power in the exact same way that almost everybody rose to power during this point in history, by killing a whole lot of people. And it kind of bums me out. You know, I would, I would love for the story to be about the one queen of Israel who was just a beautiful example of godly womanhood. But instead, she's more in the, the mold 
of an evil Disney queen who hands out poison apples to little girls. Like, she's more in that. So I hate to kind of spoiler alert on that, but she is just a nasty, nasty lady, Athaliah. Okay, so let's get into our story. If you want to get a Bible out, get your hands on a Bible. We'll be in 2 Kings chapter 11. 2 Kings chapter 11. If you brought a Bible, awesome. If you didn't, feel free to grab one of those black ones near you. Um, We'll be on page 317 in the black Bibles in the pews, or the verses will be on the screen. Assuming I did it right this week. I left out a few apparently last week. Now, before we get to uh, uh, 2 Kings 11 chapter 1, as with every story in the Bible, there's always a little bit of backstory that we've got to cover before we dive right in, okay? Now, at this point in Israel's history, Israel had had kind of a civil war, and the nation had split in two, okay? There was the northern part of Israel that kept the name Israel, and then there was the southern kingdom that took on the name Judah, because Judah was the largest tribe that stayed in that little section. So we have two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And as you read through books of, you know, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, it's jumping back and forth telling you who was king at the time of which particular country, Israel or Judah. Well, okay, at the time when we're, our story kicks off, the king of the, of the northern kingdom was a guy named Joram, all right? And let me just tell you, heads up, it gets a little confusing because there's two Jorams in our story, and that, you know, just makes it so easy for someone like myself to explain and try to keep everybody on the same track, okay? So this is the first Joram in our story. Um, I feel like, though, we can follow along. We've got enough Beckys in our church. Good and grief. If we can keep all of our Beckys straight, we can keep two Jorams straight, okay? Right? So this is Joram, who is the king of the northern kingdom. And the king of the southern kingdom is Ahaziah, okay? What a fun name, right? Anybody thought about that one when you name kids? Didn't think so. All right. So Ahaziah, right? So we have Joram and Ahaziah. And then this guy Jehu shows up because he wants the throne in the northern kingdom. And so Ahaziah and Joram just happen to be having a little get together. Jehu shows up. Joram's like, oh, he's here to kill me. Gets in his chariot, starts to ride off. Jehu shoots an arrow into his back through his heart. Great shot on a moving target, right? Drops him dead right there in his chariot. And thus takes the throne of the northern kingdom, Israel. And then Ahaziah is like, you know what? I don't belong here. I shouldn't have even, I'm so sorry I came. I don't think you came for me. I'm just going to go ahead and get out of here. And then he has all of his troops shoot Ahaziah too. So in like five minutes, this guy Jehu shows up and wipes out two, of, two kings of these two separate nations. And then he takes the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel. But who takes the throne of the southern kingdom? That's where our story picks up. 2 Kings 11 We'll start in verse 1. Now, Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah. So this is the guy that just got shot by like five arrows. His mom saw that her son was dead, and she arose and destroyed all the royal family. And he just states it like that, and then it moves on. And so Ahaziah's mother says that since her son is dead, she's going to do what no other woman has done in either uh, the entire history of Israel. She's going to take the throne for herself. Because the way this worked, and you know how this kind of stuff works, in that period, there could only be kings. The, the, the throne passed from father to son to father to son. And if there wasn't any sons, then it would go to a brother or a cousin. I mean, they, they always connected it to a guy. And so she thought, well, let's have enough of that. Let's just wipe everybody out, and I will be the new queen. So she gets everybody out of the way, so there's no heirs to the throne, and it's uncontested for her. Now, what's important to realize about, just to kind of give you a feel for who this lady is, 
she was already a person who had some influence. Um, in Eastern cultures, the queen mother was kind of an official role. That meant she was a powerful person. She already had some influence. She already had some authority. But for her, it wasn't enough. She didn't want some authority. She wanted all the authority. She didn't want some power and some influence. She wanted all the power and all the influence, and she was willing to do anything to get it. Now, the way this verse is written, it just states it like, oh, just like everybody else, she just went out and killed all the people, and then she got the throne. But she didn't just destroy the royal family, okay? Take the words the royal out of there and replace it with her. She destroyed all her family, this was her family she's wiping out. She, and and, and um, it was mostly grandsons, because all of Ahaziah's brothers got killed. We learn that in another part of the story. So he was the only person in his little uh, branch of the tree left. And so she goes after his kids, her own grandsons. Now, hopefully there's enough grandmas in the room today that that makes you a little grumpy. Like, hopefully that makes you a little bit, oh man, I don't want to take that lady out, right? I mean, I don't know why, but the whole time I was writing this, you know, I thought I could just see, like, Sue, cool, not to pick on you, Sue, but I could just see Sue, like, taking out her earrings, getting ready to throw down with somebody trying to do something like this, right? It's like, oh, you can't kill your grandkids, right? But that's how hungry she was for power. She wanted the throne for herself, and she was willing to do anything to, do, to get it, even killing her own flesh and blood. And look at this. Okay, remember, her son just died. He goes off on a meeting and gets shot by, in like this weird little coup that happens, okay? And does she once mourn for her son? No. I mean, she just says, oh, he's gone, now's my shot, now's the moment I've been waiting for. I mean, what a horrible, horrible person. Have I convinced you of what a horrible person she is? Good, that was my, that was my point, my goal up to this point. All right, let's go to verse 2. We get some more people with some great fun names. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram. Now, this is the second King Joram. Because Ahaziah's dad, the king who just got killed from the southern kingdom, his dad was also named Joram. I know, it's hard to follow, right? So the daughter, Jehoshaphat, was Ahaziah's sister, it says. Uh, she took Joash. Man, aren't these names. They all start with J-O-J-E, Jeha something. Man, it's great. Um, so she took the son of Ahaziah, okay? So Athaliah's grandson, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him away from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over the land. So we get to this new character in the story, Jehoshaphat, who is Athaliah's daughter, maybe. We're not really sure, um, because as was typical at this point in time, a lot of the kings had more than one bedmate. Even the best kings of Israel were horrible at that particular point. And so while all the king's sons are being lined up to be killed, she grabs a boy who is less than one year old, maybe, maybe one year old, and she hides him away in one of the bedrooms of the palace, probably because he was the smallest and easiest to hide. But all she wanted to do was make sure there was some hope of the kingly line to be restored. Some hope that God's plan, that David's family members would stay on the throne. And so she takes her nephew, probably her youngest nephew, and hides him away. Now remember, again, just to show you, Athaliah is horrible. She was going to take this tiny child, one year old, and she was going to kill him. 
And so Jehoshaphat becomes the hero of our story, and she hides him and his nanny away in one of the rooms of the palace, and then later it says he's moved to the house of the Lord. He's moved to the temple of God and hidden there while Athaliah reigns. Now, that's a weird thing. Like, why would they take the king's son and hide him in the temple of the Lord? If you don't know much about Israel and the temple, the temple was kind of a big deal. Even at the points in Israel's history when Israel went way off the rails, it was still this pretty important place in society, all right? People would go to the temple all the time to make sacrifices and offerings, and a couple times of the year, a whole bunch of people came from all over the country to make sacrifices. I mean, there were times of the year when it was super busy. Why would you try to hide somebody in this, like, popular hub of the community, right? Why wouldn't they get him on a horse or a camel or a donkey, as we learned maybe last week, and take him to, like, some small city out in the boonies and hide him away? Well, the reason was Athaliah was so far from God. She was so evil and nasty, they thought, well, she ain't ever coming to church, so we can hide him here, and she'll never find him. We can hide this boy in plain sight, and she'll never, we we are so confident that she is so far away from God, she is never going to step in the temple, we can keep him here, and she will never, ever darken the door to find him. It's kind of like how some of you ladies, you can hide your husband's birthday present in the dishwasher. And he would have no clue. You don't have to wrap it or hide it. You could sit it in there with the tag on it, the receipt taped to the box, whatever, and he would have no clue. You could put it there for months and he wouldn't know it was there, right? Gentlemen, help your wives with the dishes. That's not a subtle hint, right? Okay, so, so I mean, it's like, it's the best place. They're so confident that he's, she's not going to go in there. They hide him right in the back door. And plus, she wasn't even really sure that he existed. She thought she'd killed all of the king's sons anyway. And so... Um, they hide him away in the temple. And while Athaliah is being far from God, we learn that uh, Jehoshaphat, gosh, that's a good name, her husband is a guy named Jehoiada, right? You keeping all this straight? Right, you don't have to keep it all straight, it's fine. Um, Just remember Athaliah, okay? Remember her and the king's son Jehu. So Jehoiada is is Jehoshaphat's husband, and he's the high priest right now. And so her, and his aunt and uncle, or they're the aunt and uncle of the king, and they're raising him, and they are teaching him to be godly. They are teaching him to love the Lord and to how to lead the people back to the Lord. They are teaching him basically to be the opposite of Athaliah, who currently sits on the throne. And they did that for seven years. Seven years. And the reason why this is significant, that one, Athaliah wouldn't even go into the temple, and why they spent so much time hiding a one-year-old Uh, and so much trouble for all that, is because the the royalty, the rulers of Israel, they were meant to lead people to God. Because God founded the nation of Israel as this, to be this beacon of hope, to show Yahweh to the world. And, And it started with the leaders. The leaders were meant to always point people back to God, always show that we are here to worship God and point people to Him. And so many of Israel's kings failed that, and Athaliah failed so miserably at that as well. And so she was not doing what she was supposed to do. And so Joash, I said Jehu, sorry, Jehu's the other guy. Man, this is tricky. I'm telling you, this isn't easy even for a preacher to keep all these guys straight. Joash is the the king's son who's one. Um, His aunt Jehoshaphat and uncle Jehoiada are raising him for six years in the way of the Lord. And when he's seven years old, okay, when he's seven years old, they've been hiding him for his life for seven years. They decide, okay, we can't put up with this lady 
anymore. And they get a bunch of the priests together, and they get a bunch of guards together, and they say, all right, this is done. We're putting the rightful king on the throne tonight. And they get everybody into the temple, and they make him the king. They anoint him the new king of Israel, and they just kind of do an end run. Now, um, I want you to point, I want to point out, their revolt was not a bloody battle like hers was. Again, she lined people up and had them slaughtered. Her own family had them slaughtered. That's not the way they did it. They got everybody together in the last place the queen would ever go, the temple, and they anointed a seven-year-old to be their king. Which, again, hints at just how bad of a human being she was. I mean, how bad, how bad of a ruler must she have been that they were willing to put a seven-year-old in charge of all the things You've met seven-year-olds, right? Like, I have a six-year-old, and I can, only, I can only imagine the types of, like, commands he would put forth if we just said, okay, hey, James, you're in charge of everything now. You make all the rules, which he would love, by the way. That's right up his alley. But, like, the first thing he would say is, the iPad is mine and no one else's, especially Jude's. He would say, um, dessert shall now be served before every meal. And he would say, from henceforth, all taxes shall be paid to me in Sour Patch Kids and Fruit by the Foot. That's what, those are the kinds of things that are on a seven-year-old's mind. I can't imagine putting a seven-year-old in the White House. I can't imagine that move. Like, that's how bad she was that everybody else was like, anything better than this. Anything is better than this crazy lady on the throne of Israel. And so that's what they signed up for. Now move on down to verse 10, and we'll finish up uh, the part of the story at least that we're covering today. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's. That's a signal to say, these are the weapons of the king and his guard. We're bringing back a rightful heir to David's throne today. So they gave them the shields and spears that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guards stood, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house on the behalf of of the king. So they surrounded the king so that if this thing went sideways, nobody's going to be able to hurt that little boy. They made sure that he was going to be the king at the end of the day no matter what. And they were going to give their lives to make sure of that. And then he brought out the king's son, put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him the king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, "Long live the king." And when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and the people, she went into the house of the Lord for the first time in maybe a long time to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom. And the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, treason, treason. And this brings us to the most interesting part of the story to me about Athaliah, the most telling part to me about Athaliah is, yes, she's the woman who was willing to kill her own grandsons to get to the throne. Yes, she didn't mind that they were children. Um, she was a woman so evil that her own grandson had to spend six plus years in hiding so that he would not be killed. And here she is yelling, treason. Who's the one who committed treason? Her! She's the one that committed treason. She's the one that murdered a bunch of kids. She's the villain of the story, and she doesn't see it. 
You see, this whole series has been about how when we disobey God, when we venture off into our own sin, how it brings chaos into our lives. But the greatest place that this chaos will show up when we leave God's plan is inside of us. Not only does this create chaos for our relationships and for what's going on around us when we're being selfish and we're striving for power that isn't supposed to be ours and all this stuff, but it also wreaks havoc on our hearts. Sin creates chaos in your heart and in my heart. Because what happens is when we disobey our Heavenly Father, we run the risk of losing our ability to see right from wrong. Because oftentimes, and I've seen it enough times to know the, the, the pattern, is we walk away from God, if we started out knowing anything about God, we walk away from God and we start to justify what we've done. We start to ignore and silence that voice inside of us, our conscience, so that, no, you don't know what's going on. I, I, know, I know what's doing right. And we start to say, well, everyone told me I just need to do what makes me happy. And so, yes, there's consequences for other people, but this isn't about other people. This is about me doing what's right for me. And we, we leave God behind and we go do our own thing. And it is, it is possible that at the end of the day, you will be so far down a road that is of selfishness and greed and evil or whatever sinful road you're walking that what's wrong starts to feel comfortable and what's right starts to feel strange and bizarre and you will have your entire perspective flipped upside down. This is why when we're in a mess of sin and somebody comes to us who loves us, a wife, a brother, a sister, a child, they come to us and they say, hey, I don't know if you realize this, but you are so far down this road and I want to help you, but you've got to stop this. We get mad at them. Why? Because how dare they? They're the ones who are wrong. I'm doing okay. I'm minding my own business. How dare they? And we lose the perspective to see that they care for us and that they're trying to lead us back from something dangerous and onto a road of, of godliness that is good for us. And we see it all backwards. We're the ones who's right. They're the ones who are wrong. And it's amazing how backwards our viewpoint can become when we walk down this road of sin. And so, like Athaliah, it's possible for us to be neck deep in sin and still be convinced that we're right and they're wrong. And ultimately, uh, in a few verses from where we stopped reading, they end up putting Athaliah to death. She's only one of two people that get put to death, not a whole family of people. Um, and then it says afterwards, I find this so interesting, it said, and after she was put to death, the city was quiet. Why? Because the chaos was gone. The source of chaos was gone, which was the queen. And so they put her to death. And it's interesting because, again, there's no greater sort or place where sin creates chaos than in your own heart. It will wreak more damage on your inside than it could ever do on your outside. And it can make your outsides a mess. But it will make you blind to right and wrong. It will make you angry at people who love you and are trying to help you. And so I just want you to understand the danger of disobedience. It's such a dangerous thing to walk. You will get to a place where you don't feel guilt anymore, where you don't feel shame anymore, where you uh, can not even hear the whispering voice of your conscience anymore. And if you do, you're like, oh, pfft, that old thing, that's gone. I don't need to listen to that anymore. You don't hear your conscience saying, hey, put that money back. That's not yours. You don't hear your conscience saying, that's not a website you need to be on. You don't hear your conscience saying, don't take that one drink. Put it down. You don't hear your conscience saying, don't gossip like that. 
You don't know if that's true. And even if it was true, what help are you doing to that person? Stop gossiping. You don't hear those voices anymore because you are so down this path of sin and your vision is so clouded. And so, as much as it might hurt, okay, and I just want to just toss this out there. I don't know if anybody's in this place, but I've been in a place like this before, and I guess I'm not the only one. If you have had anybody in your life, maybe recently, come to you and say, this is wrong. You need to stop. I want to help you because I love you. And you got mad at them because they needed to mind your own business. Maybe you need to take an honest, humble, hard look at yourself and say, wait, is it possible that I'm not seeing clearly because I've walked off of God's plan for me? Is it possible that there's enough chaos in my heart that I can't see right from wrong? And that person, my mom, my boss, my, my brother who loves me, is it possible that they are saying those things because they care? Because so often we reject those moments. We reject those voices in the times we need them the most. And so we need that. We need to have people in our lives who have permission to hurt our feelings, to call us out, to say, Hey, you idiot, that's dumb. You know better. We all know better. Stop it. Come on back to the right way to live. I don't know, by the way, some, maybe that's not the, the tone that would work on you, but anytime I've had somebody come to me like that, that was the tone that finally worked on me. When I had somebody who kind of grabbed me by the proverbial ear and said, you're a moron, let's go. And Okay, yeah, that's, that's how I got my spiritual life together finally, honestly. When I first became a Christian, I decided, well, becoming a Christian means I guess I get a ticket to heaven, but I can do whatever I want, and I can live my life however I want. And finally, I had a youth minister say, show, up, show up to me and say, hey, you said you were going to be a follower of Jesus. Come on, let's do some following. And he grabbed my ear, and he led me where I should go. And I wouldn't even be a minister. I don't even know if I'd still be a Christian if it weren't for him doing that for me. So we need people to call us out. And secondly, some of us, we need to have the courage to have those hard conversations with people. I've seen, I've seen family members let brothers, sisters, kids walk off the deep end and not say anything because they knew it was going to be awkward, because they knew they weren't going to listen. They might not listen now, but you put that little bit of truth in there that might come around one day. We have to be people, if we love them, who stand for the truth and try to save them from a road that can be dangerous. So poor Athaliah, I wish she was a better example, but she's just a mess. She's just a rotten, rotten, rotten lady who couldn't see right from wrong because of how far away she'd gotten from God. And so I just want to let her story be a warning to you that, yes, sin creates chaos, sin creates disruption, sin creates upheaval, but nowhere will it create more of a mess than inside your heart. Beware of that. Run from sin. Flee from sin. There are reasons why Paul, over and over again in the New Testament, he says, run, flee, get out from that, run away, because it will drag you down a road that you do not want to go. God has a plan for you. He has a path for you, and it is because he loves you, and he knows that that road is best. Why throw that away and run into a mess because we think we know better? He's our gracious Heavenly Father, and he always knows what's best. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for all that you do for us. This is such a painful story. So much bloodshed and, and needless pain caused in, in these books, in this period of Israel's history. And I pray that we would not let that bloodshed be in vain, but I pray that we would be people who thousands of years later can read these stories and learn 
from the mistakes of the past and see the danger of people that walk away from your will and into disobedience and into destruction. And I pray, Father, that we would be people who cling to your word, that we would be people who, who are concerned not with how close can I get to sin without making God mad, but rather we are people who want to be so close to you that sin starts to look distasteful to us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see clearly the right path. And I pray that if there's anybody in here who is down a wrong road, I pray that you would put a crack in that clouded vision of theirs so that when someone comes to them who loves them and says, please come back to the way of obedience, the way that is right, the way that honors God and leads to his blessing, I pray that they would have ears to hear and it might save their life. So Father, as we come here today, give us ears to hear your word. Soften our hearts from the, the work that sin has often done, where we don't want to listen to reason, we don't want to listen to truth, because sin is messing with us. It's clouding our vision, it's making us think wrong is right and right is wrong. Give us the clarity to see your word, so that we can see your path and follow you. We pray all this in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.